So Numbers 31, that's where our study will take place tonight, but we'll start off in Romans chapter 7. Father, again, we pray that you will bless the study of your word. We pause just in this moment before getting into the study because, Lord, as always, we want your Holy Spirit to teach us. We want the words on the page here to be brought to life by the power of the one who raised Jesus from the dead and the one who brings life to our mortal bodies, the one who brings us the fruit of the Spirit. And we ask you to do so tonight as we study. Lord, I pray that these words be your words, both the words on the page and spoken, Father, that our hearts would hear what you would have us hear. And Lord, that the teaching be about your will. And not mine or anyone else's. Lord, lead us into a place with you now where again our faith can grow and we can be strengthened and know you better. God, thank you for your word. Bless it tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning at verse 14 of Romans chapter 7. Paul is writing here to the church in Rome and he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand. I am not practicing what I would like to do. I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Anyone relate to that? (laughs) The willing's there. He does. Nice. Good. Forgive her, Lord. I lost my place. (laughs) Verse 18. The willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. The good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. He's now said this twice. Do you get what Paul is saying? We have a sin nature. We may hate it. It may frustrate us. It may drive us to do things we don't want to do, but hey, it's there. And no matter how much we want to live for the Lord or do the right thing, no matter how willing we are, the sin nature dwells in us as long as we're in the flesh and goes to war with the spiritual nature. He says in verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Oh, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Life is a battlefield. Life is a battlefield. From the cradle to the grave, or to the sky, whichever it might be, a battle rages on. 
And the battle is not only for our souls, gang, it's in our souls. The battle rages. And tonight we're going to see a graphic portrayal of this, a physical example of spiritual warfare in our lives today. Numbers chapter 31. Go ahead and turn back there. Numbers 31. You might see a heading at the top of uh, Numbers 31 if your Bible has headings before the chapters. Mine says the slaughter of Midian. Something you need to understand about Midian. As with a lot of those who set themselves against Israel, Midian is a picture of the flesh. Midian is a symbol of the flesh. And what we see tonight as we're going to study the children of Israel taking vengeance on Midian, going after the Midianites, there is a direct parallel to the spiritual battle that we wage in our very souls. The battle between the law of God, which is good, but unfortunately just illuminates how bad I really am. Paul said in Romans 5 that the law was added, that the trespass might increase. In other words, when the law is there, suddenly we recognize the wrong we do. We can see it. It's graphically portrayed. And we realize we are but sinners. If not for Jesus, people who would be lost. So Numbers 31, beginning in verse 1, tells us the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take full vengeance for the sons of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you will be gathered to your people. This is now the second time the Lord has said this. I'm curious as to Moses' response. Because the Lord said it one time earlier. He said it when he commanded Moses to climb Mount Abarim. A couple of chapters earlier. You're going to climb up that mountain. I'm going to give you a holy perspective, Moses, of the entire land of Israel. That you will not enter, but the land that you brought the people to. I'm going to let you see it all. And I shared this before, I believe, supernaturally. He saw the entire land. Even areas that cannot be seen from the top of Mount Abarim, he saw it all. The Lord allowed him that gracious, merciful picture. But God said, you're going to see that and then you're going to die, Moses. Well, Moses did not quite yet die. Now God comes to him again and says, now you're going to take full vengeance on the Midianites and then you're going to die, Moses. And if I were Moses, I'd be going, thanks a lot for reminding me again, Lord. (laughs) How often are you going to tell me that? I'm going to die. Okay, I get it. I'm old. I'm I'm not going to be here much longer. But it's interesting to me That here in the book of Numbers, we're reminded that even Moses, for all of his greatness as a prophet of God, his days were numbered. It's the book of Numbers. It is the book of numbering. You go throughout the book, there there are censuses taken, there are numbers given. But what's really at the heart of this book, and if I had to go back at the very beginning and do an introduction to Numbers again, I think I would call the study Making My Life Count. A life that counts. Standing up as those numbered among those of the Lord. Moses is numbered. Comes out wonderfully, although we know he's going to die here at the end, but, but he lives for the Lord. We've seen that throughout this book. Men like Phineas. Remember the spear of Phineas who stood up for the Lord when no one else would. Men like Joshua and Caleb who will go into the promised land. The daughters of Zelophehad who we studied on Sunday. People who stood up to be numbered whose lives made a difference, who really counted in this book. But we even see among all the greatness of so many wonderful people that their days are numbered. Psalm 139.16 Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Now, by the way, you need to know that doesn't squash the free will of man. There are different perspectives on the scriptures about this. But the reality is the Lord knows the extent of my days. He knows the length of my days. He knows the choices I'm going to make. 
But he doesn't force me to make them. And that's a very important distinction that we need to understand. Scripture makes it clear we have the ability to choose, to think. Scripture makes it clear that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Therefore, God wants everybody to choose Him, but He knows not everybody will. Our days are ordained for us. They are all laid out. God sees from the very beginning to the very end. He already has seen each one of us passing. Did you know that? He's already seen either your death or your rapture, depending on what happens. We're all holding out for the rapture. He's seen it. He's aware of it. Does he force it? Is it that I have no choice? Absolutely not. But when you're sovereign like God and you can see and know everything, you're going to know what choices are made by people even before they make them. So is it that we have free will or are my days ordained for me before one of them came to be? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. You're right on. So now that we understand that, the Lord comes to Moses and says you're about to die, but there's one more thing that has to be done here, Moses. You've got to fight the Midianites. One more battle, Moses. Just one more. The Midianites. Do you remember the Midianites, the people of Midian? Do you remember what happened with them? They, along with the Moabites, led Israel into some pretty heinous sin. They hired a strange prophet, a guy by the name of Balaam. That's right, Balaam. He was hired by King Balak of the Moabites to go out and curse Israel. And he tried to curse Israel three different times, and it didn't work. In fact, every time he opened his mouth to curse, you know what happened. He blessed. He gets ready to shake his fist and to pronounce a curse on Israel. And the moment the words come out, blessing, 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 blessing. And the people were blessed. But Balaam, as you know, understood something that when you can't take them on, when you can't curse them, what you can do is compromise them. And so he led Balak and the Moabites and the Midianites into this idea of subtle, crafty, cunning compromise. You can read about it in Numbers 22 through 24. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Jude 11 tells us about Balaam. And finally, and probably most uh, significantly, Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. Tells us exactly what Balaam did. Teaching the Moabites and the Midianites that subtle craft of compromise. Because when the curses of the enemy don't work, the cunning of compromise often does. And that's where he gets most of us in our lives. You see, Satan can't curse you. You're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. You have a wonderful protection. The curses of Satan no longer have any impact on your life. Praise God. But you can't be compromised. He can subtly whisper in your ear. He can speak to that sin nature that's at war with the spiritual in you. And he can cause you to just give a little ground. Just a little bit here and there. I'm just going to have a a small taste of that, a tiny sip of that, a a, a short viewing of that. Compromise. And worldly conformity is compromise. It's so seductive and so subtle. John talks about it in in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. He says, do not love the things of the world. Do not love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, listen to this, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. It is from the world. He says the world's passing away and also its lusts. 
But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Don't love the world. Paul says in Romans 12 verse 2, Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't conform to the world. Be conformed to the Spirit of God. Don't live your life to fit in to the world. Stick out. Stand out. Be one who makes your life count. Be numbered among the faithful. Don't be conformed. The Lord says there's only one way now to deal with this issue of compromise, this compromise that came through Midian. He says, Moses, verse 2, take full vengeance for the sons of Israel on the Midianites. Full vengeance. In other words, wipe them out. You are not to leave a single man, woman, child, or beast standing. Full vengeance means just that. I looked it up in the Hebrew. Full vengeance means full vengeance. Wipe them out. Deal with the compromise now so that it won't return later. But here's the thing that's interesting to me. The Lord brings this to Moses as a final act before death. How telling. Before Moses dies... He has to fight yet another battle. Before Moses dies, there's one more war to be waged. In other words, life is a battlefield. Listen to me. Life is a battlefield to the very day you die. You don't retire from the warfare in the Christian life. Now this may be bad news to some of you, especially if you're a little weary tonight. Trust me, it'll get better. But the battle rages on. And we don't pull out of the battle just because we're tired. And we don't stop in the fight just because, you know, I've done my part. I am so impressed with those who reach the age of retirement based on our, you know, American system and re-engage. This Sunday, Brian and Ruth Young are going to be coming and sharing with us. Um, He's not going to preach, but they're going to be here Sunday morning to worship with us and get to have lunch with them and spend some time with them. Brian and Ruth, who are missionaries, they're retired They should be kicking back on, I don't know, some comfortable island somewhere, enjoying the fruits of their many years of labor, but they are working. They are still in the field. They are still engaged in the battle. And here, God says to Moses, one more warfare. You're going to die, but before you can, you've got to fight again. And it's a reality, it's a spiritual truth that is huge. We can deceive ourselves into thinking life is going to get better. That's one option. We can do that. When I finish this commitment, after I get that raise, when I've paid off that debt, then all will be right with my world. That's all I need. I just need to get to the day after tomorrow, and it's all going to be good. And you know what the Bible says about that? Proverbs thirteen twelve: Hope deferred makes the heart sick. That's hope deferred. It's going to get better when. Everything's going to be fine if. My life will be smooth after. It's hope deferred. You know why hope deferred makes the heart sick? Because hope deferred only lands in that place where though you solve one problem, you have five more right in front of you waiting to go around. It really doesn't matter how you accomplish things back here because up here there's still more to do. All the way to the final breath. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But listen to this. The last half of that verse says, But desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Desire fulfilled is a tree of life. See, that's a hope that Paul says in Romans 5.5 does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Why was the Holy Spirit given to us? Well, many reasons, but one as a seal. 
as a promise that what we have in this life, that we are headed to a final destination, and that final destination is a desire fulfilled. What do you mean, Rick? I mean, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we have already been seated in the heavenly places. We're already there. (laughs) Doesn't look like it. But according to the Lord, the promise is so absolutely secure, so locked in. We're there. That is a desire fulfilled and it's a tree of life. And you know what amazes me? Where is the tree of life? Remember the tree of life? Adam and Eve could eat out of it in the garden, right? Where is it now? It's waiting for us. Yep. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2 tell us that in the ultimate new Jerusalem, the tree of life reappears. The tree of life giving fruit for living, leaves for healing. It's a promise, guaranteed, hope deferred, makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. So you see, we can, we can get into this thinking that life's going to get better around the corner, or, or, or we can understand that life is not heaven until we get to heaven. Now that's important to understand. Because otherwise, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But Jesus says, you know, in the world you have tribulation. Remember that? In the world, you have tribulation straight from the mouth of the Lord. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tribulation with a little T. But he says, be of good cheer. Take courage. I have overcome the world. And so we will battle the flesh as long as we're in the flesh. As long as we breathe, as long as we walk on the face of this little planet, we will be at war. So we can deceive ourselves thinking life's going to get better. Or we can determine to fight. We can say we will be among those who are numbered. We will go all the way to the last day. All the way to, all the way to our last breath. Moses, you're going to die. But first, there's a war to wage. Look at verse 3. So Moses spoke to the people saying, Arm men from among you for the war. That they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel you shall send to the war. So there were furnished from the thousands of Israel a thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand armed for war. Moses sent them a thousand from each tribe to the war, and Phineas, that old Phineas with his spear, Phineas the son of Eleazar the priest, to the war with them, and the holy vessels and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. Wait a minute. Now think about this. Why is Phineas going? Phineas is the son of the high priest, next in line after Eliezer to be the high priest over Israel. Why is Phineas going to battle, and much more, why is he taking the holy vessels with him? Because this is a holy war. It's a holy war. It's not payback, it's protection. And by the way, Phineas is the right guy to go, isn't he? This is a man who's got the passion to fight for the Lord. A good man to have in war, but he's a holy man. And so right off the bat we understand the priest is going, he's taking the holy vessels. This is a holy war, not jihad. And that's the Muslim name for holy war. It's a completely different thing. This is a holy war in the name of the Lord God. And by the way, do you know why after five years, after five or so years after 9-11, why we're not flat out winning the war on terror? I was thinking about this this week. Why aren't we winning? Why hasn't it gotten better? Well, I know we haven't had any attacks on American soil in quite a while. Great. But why is it so bloody in Iraq? And why can't we seem to get a handle on things there? 
I'll tell you why. It's a holy war. It's a holy war and we haven't recognized that yet. Our country is fighting a secular war while the terrorists are fighting, for their part, a holy war. And those who fight a holy war gang typically win because they have eternity on their minds. They're not thinking four or five years down the line. While Americans, uh, so often now our hearts are failing us and we're going, oh, we should pull out, we need to not be there. We're getting tired. It's been a long battle. Three years. Three years in God's timetable is not a long time. Now, I'm not trying to push the war in Iraq, but there's a misunderstanding in what's going on here. Present-day Iraq, gang, do you know what present-day Iraq is? It's Babylon. It's the land of Persia. What does the Bible tell us about that? Well, Babel began there. One of the earliest, if not the earliest, rebellions of man happened right there. Second, maybe the first rebellions led up to the flood, but just after that, Genesis chapter 10 and 11, we read about Babel. In Babel, there was a city that was founded by a man named Nimrod, who was a mighty hunter who set himself against the Lord, in the face of the Lord, fought against the Lord, rebelled. It's the home of ancient Babylon. It's the stomping grounds, and I think this is very significant, of the prince of Persia. Who's the prince of Persia? Well, I'll let you do the homework yourself. Daniel chapter 10, verse 13 will tell you that. All right, I'll tell you. The prince of Persia. (laughs) It's a fascinating chapter. Daniel chapter 10. Daniel is in prayer. And he is laboring in prayer. And he is working in prayer. And if you read Daniel chapter 9, it's interesting because he prays there. And it's a prayer that takes about three seconds. If you read it through in Hebrew, it's about three seconds long. And by the time he finishes and opens his eyes, Gabriel's standing there. Kind of rocking back and forth on his feet because he's been waiting a couple seconds. Okay? Immediately dispatched in this prayer. You get to chapter 10 of Daniel. And Daniel prays. And he prays. And he prays. And he prays. And he has to continue praying for a long amount of time. Finally, Gabriel shows up. Finally, Gabriel begins to speak with him. But in verse 13 of Daniel 10, he he tells this interesting fact. He says, I almost didn't get through. I had to fight the prince of Persia and so powerful was the prince of Persia I had to get help from Michael King. Michael is the archangel in the book of Revelation who defeats Satan and gets him booted out of heaven Michael is one powerful, subtly angel and Gabriel needed Michael's help they had to work function in tandem to be able to drive out the prince of Persia who is the prince of Persia I submit a demon principality over that region and do you think he's gone from there Jesus says when a demon is cast out you know what he does he goes out into the arid places he finds seven other demons to gather with him to go back and retake that land and so I really wonder if the prince of Persia hasn't just set up his little his little principality right there over Iraq it's a holy war that is being fought Now I tell you all that for this personal reason. In the same way that I don't believe that Prince of Persia or the principalities or the evil that is in that part of the world has given up, I don't believe Satan just gives up on us. I don't believe Satan wakes up one day and goes, you know, I'm in a good mood today. (laughs) Satan never is in a good mood. I think I'm going to go to the beach today and and I'm going to let the Christians have a day off. (laughs) I've been a little hard on them lately. I'll let them breathe. Kick back, you know. The demons and I will go watch a game. 
not how he functions. Peter says, your adversary, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He never stops. And so as Christians, you know, there are times where you say, you know, I'm not going to church this week. I need a break. Well, terrific. Satan's not taking a break. I'm not going to go. I'm a little tired of Bible study. I'm just going to stay home. Or, you know what? I, I, I could share Jesus with my friends today, but man, I've been sharing, 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 and I just, I just need a break. Satan takes no breaks. There's a holy war going on, a spiritual battle, and until we recognize that, both internationally but also personally, there will be no victory. A battle is going on. Verse seven tells us they made war against Midian just as the Lord had commanded Moses and they killed every male now watch this they killed the kings of Midian along with the rest of their slain Evie who had some Christian albums several years ago (laughs) and Rechem and Zer and Hur who I believe his first name was Ben and and Reba who sang country music the five kings (laughs) they're all the five kings of Midian but watch this they also killed Balaam the son of Beor with the sword end of Balaam's life right there Balaam who compromised Israel couldn't curse them but he taught the Midianites and the Moabites how to compromise them and it's so interesting in the death of Balaam because it's exactly the opposite of what he wanted Back in Numbers 23, verse 10, Balaam cries out during one of his prophecies, Let me die the death of the upright. Pronouncing himself to be a high and mighty and a righteous prophet. Let me die the death of the upright. But you can't die the death of the upright if you live the life of downright evil. If your life is about compromise, righteous death is reserved for those who live righteous lives. And so Balaam did not get his wish. He doesn't die the death of the upright. He dies the death of the wicked. And you might say, well, wait a minute, Frank. If a righteous death is reserved for those who live righteous lives, doesn't the Bible teach that none is righteous? No, not one? Where does that leave us? Romans chapter 1, verse 7 tells us in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. By faith. That's where your righteousness is. It's in your faith. It's not in your actions. It's not in your behavior. It's in your faith. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And Hebrews 10.37-39, For yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the souls. Balaam had no faith. Balaam was all words. He didn't trust the Lord. He compromised, and so he dies the death of the wicked. Now as we read on, watch this, because another spiritual principle emerges here, and that's the fact that the battle isn't over just because there seems to be a victory. Verse 9, The sons of Israel captured the women of Midian and their little ones and all their cattle and their flocks and all their goods. They plundered. And then they burned all their cities where they lived and all their camps with fire. They took all the spoil and all the prey, both of man and beast. 
They brought the captives and the prey and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the congregation of the sons of Israel to the camp at the plains of Moab which are by the Jordan opposite Jericho. Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the leaders of the congregation went out to meet them outside the camp. What a moment of victory. I mean this is a major vengeance here. They raised all the cities. They killed every single male. Wouldn't you think Moses would be pleased? Think again. Verse 14. Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the captains of the thousands and the captains of the hundreds who had come in from service in the war. And Moses said to them, Have you spared all the women? Yeah. What threat do they pose? Come on, Moses. I mean, we've got to have some mercy here, right? Verse 16. Moses says, Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Don't you remember, guys, what happened? It was the women of Midian and the women of Moab who led you guys into sin and into idolatry. It wasn't even the men who did that. It was the women, and yet you have left the women alive. Gang, the word of the Lord was very clear here. Take full vengeance on Midian. Annihilate them completely. Wipe them out 100%. You don't leave a certain person living. You might say, well, again, what's the harm in sparing the women? Isn't that just merciful? And that's exactly what the Israelite army were thinking. Spare the woman. Spare the women. They're not a problem for us anymore. See, that was then and this is now. We've matured. We can now handle that. We can deal with it now. <laughs> we have victory over that. We conquered that. So we're okay, right? Proverbs 16:18 tells us pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It's better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. And again, the men of Israel are thinking, hey, the spoil won't spoil us anymore. It's not a problem. We can handle these women, which was the problem. <laughs> think about it. They were never mind. First Corinthians, I want you to think about that. If we can handle Did you guys get that little joke there? Anybody? No. No? Maybe you don't want to, just let it go. First Corinthians chapter ten, verse eight. <laughs> Paul says, Let him who stands or let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. What is it in your past that was a big problem for you, but you've gotten under control? What is something in your past, and we all have it, some sin back in the dark recesses of your memory that you struggled with before, but not for years and years? You've had victory over it. Be careful. Be careful because those past sins seep in. Just when we least expect them to. When we think, I am so over that, I had victory. We took out all the men. The women were fine. They're not going to hurt anything. No, they're still there. The world seeps in. Sin seeps in. The issue, gang, is not whether we live in the world, it's whether the world lives in us. James chapter 4 verse 4 Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
John 15, 19, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, because of, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. A really key way to know if you are living outside of the world. In the world, but not of the world. How do you know that? Well, if the world hates you, you're right on track with the Lord. Really? Because <laughs> I kind of like to have friends, you know? And I kind of like to hang out in the world, you know? I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to stir things up. Well, I'm just giving you a spiritual principle. You will know that you're in line with the Lord when the world hates you. Because Jesus said, I pulled you out of the world. And the world hates that. Satan hates that. I I want to share something with you. And it may not mean as much to you, probably won't, as it did to me. But my daughter, Hannah, has been working for the last three or four weeks on what's called a personality project for her 8th grade class. And it's pictures and it's stories and it's letters from friends. It's this big, big, huge notebook full of all the stuff that she's been working on. And, and last night she finished the conclusion on it. And because we were out of ink in our downstairs computer, she's emailing her homework to me and I was printing it off on my computer upstairs. And I printed off her conclusion and I read it. And I got all choked up because I'm kind of a sap. And I want to read this to you. He, she wrote, and I didn't ask her permission, so don't tell her until I've asked for her permission to read this okay she wrote I guess once you're a teenager you really start to realize that we all have different beliefs I've had some rough times and quarrels with many of my friends and many of my enemies over my beliefs and morals it's hard to be a Christian it's difficult to have friends who don't believe the same things you do she's writing this for a school paper I'm going yes I often fear what the futures of my friends and even my enemies will be like Without Jesus, it doesn't look good for them. That is why I must always remember my favorite Bible verse for my sake and for theirs. This verse says the following, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. It makes me feel good to know the Lord has plans for me and everyone else as well. One other thing that's important to me for me to remember is hope. Hope is what keeps us all going. As Emily Dickinson once said, Hope is the thing with feathers that perches on the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And with this, and my favorite Bible verse in mind, I can refrain from worrying about what the future will bring because I have hope and I have Jesus. Lord, thank you for that child. (laughs) At least thanks for that moment. We had a bad moment yesterday, but I won't go there. (laughs) She's getting it. And I thank God for that. But here's the harsh reality. The world seeps in. And the task of remaining unfettered by the world is a lifelong deal. She is graduating 8th grade. But my little girl has the rest of her life to fight this fight. And it's not going to ease up for her. Man, when I was a teenager, I used to think, I can't wait till I'm an adult. So all this peer pressure would just go away. <laughs> I'm a pastor, and it don't go away. It's still there. The world is on the edge, trying to get in. Satan is trying to cause us to stumble. It's a constant deal. The battle rages on. And we bring these women into camp, who we think we've conquered. Not a, bad, not a problem for us, but they're there. And so very harshly, verse 17, Moses says, Now therefore kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known man intimately, that is, every woman who's not a virgin, you kill them. 
That's harsh. These are the days before Jesus. These are the days before the outpouring of God's grace in His Son, Jesus Christ. But these days were critical because in the people of Israel, God was doing something. And please understand this. He had to protect the people. Why? Because if Israel had fallen, there would not be a Jesus to save the world. He had to protect Israel. Even to the extent of wiping out people groups in front of them. And by the way, don't feel bad for the Midianites. Don't feel bad for these women. Don't even feel bad for the male children because the sin was so sick and we don't even have time to go into all of the idolatry and the sickness that was going on in those cultures at the time. But you may recall back in Genesis 15, God had given them 400 years to repent of their sin. 400 years, twice the age of America. <laughs> How are we doing? 400 years to turn back to the Lord. And so this just judgment was just. For the full vengeance on Midian was about the preservation of Israel. But it's also about one other thing. Not only the preservation of Israel. Well, let me show you something. Judges chapter 6. Flip over there quickly. Judges chapter 6 and verse 1. Considering that preservation of Israel, you've got to see what happens here and why this was so important. Judges chapter 6, verse 1. This is not long after, by the way. They're in the land. Joshua has helped them conquer. They've had some good years, but not many. Verse 1, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. Seven years. That's an interesting number, isn't it? Seven years. Tribulation is going to be seven years. Well, anyway, verse 2, The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. And so they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Back to Numbers 31. Had Israel obeyed and completely annihilated Midian as they were told to, they wouldn't have the problems, the continual struggle against Midian that they ended up having later on. God knew this. And so God says, I want you to take them out now, completely. In our sin life, Jesus says, your right eye offends you, pluck it out. If your left hand offends you, your right hand offends you, chop it off. Now granted, we'd all be blind and handless if we followed that literally. But the point is clear. Don't play around with those old sins over which you think you've gained victory. As long as you have breath, even those old sins can find a way back in. Be aware of that. Be careful. So the full vengeance on Midian, it was about the preservation of Israel, both then and further on down the line. But secondly, the full vengeance on Midian was about the purification of Israel. Look at verse 18. That all the girls who have not known man intimately, that is the virgins, says you may spare for yourselves. He's talking about that they can be servants. And that is some mercy. 
obviously some of the little boys were spared too because by the time Judges 6 come around they are innumerable the people of Midian once again but verse 19 going on it says and you camp outside the camp for seven days whoever has killed any person whoever has touched any slain Purify yourselves, you and your captives, on the third day and on the seventh day. And we've talked about the third and the seventh day many, many times. The third day, what happened on the third day, the most significant third day event in all of history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On the seventh day, the seventh day, speaking of that day when things are complete, when things are final, when it's all said and done, speaking of that millennial kingdom. But reading on verse 20, You shall purify for yourselves every garment and every article of leather and all the work of goat's hair and all articles of wood. And then Eleazar the priest said to the men of war who had gone to the battle, This is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded Moses. Only the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron, the tin and the lead, everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire and it shall be clean, but it shall be purified with water for impurity. But whatever cannot stand the fire, you shall pass through the water, and you shall wash your clothes, and on the seventh day, and be clean, and afterward you may enter the camp. Interesting. Purification. They went to war, they fought the battle, they had been involved with death. And as we've already read earlier on, if there's death, there must be purification. You cannot come into the camp with death on your hands. If you killed someone, if you were involved in even touching a dead body, or if you were around death, you had to be outside of the camp and you had to spend seven days getting purified. But interestingly, the purification of the plunder from this battle utilizes two specific elements, fire and water. Fire and water for purification. Why? Well, if you're taking notes, fire symbolizes either judgment or specifically trials in the Bible. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials among you which come upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. This is the first bit of really good news about the battle that we fight for all of our lives. Yes, the battle will be ongoing. Yes, the warfare continues to the very last moment. But you can take joy in that. You can exult in it. Even at the fiery trials, knowing that we share in the very sufferings of Jesus, it's making me more like Him. It's refining me. It's purifying me to be more like my Lord Jesus Christ so that, Peter says, at the revelation of His glory, you may also rejoice with exultation. You see, trials by fire determine where my heart is. When the heat goes up, when it gets tough, when the road gets really hard, that's where the evidence of my heart is seen. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.13 that each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. You can tell, you can see who is walking in the Spirit. Not when life is good, but when life stinks. Look at someone who is completely in love with the Lord, soft-spoken, kind, gentle, patient, loving, persevering, faithful, when life is terrible, and I'll show you a man who is walking in the Spirit. Because the fires, the trials, they test us. And they reveal where our hearts truly are. Fire is a symbol of that. 
the purification by trials. Water, water is wonderful. It's a symbol of the purification of the Word of God. John 15, 3, you're already clean, Jesus said, because of the Word which I have spoken to you. And Paul said in Ephesians 5.25 that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And I've shared this with you before. Even tonight, in this moment, as we study, you're being purified. As the word goes in, the heart gets cleansed. The brain gets washed. And I don't mean, you know, brainwashed, but that's kind of a good way to put it, I guess. Brain gets all the gunk and mess of the world that, that keeps trying to seep in there. And the more the word goes in, the more it washes that stuff out. I need that. I can tell two, three times of missing Bible study. You know, when I go on vacation and I'm not teaching for two or three weeks, I can tell. Wait a couple weeks down the road and I just got to read my Bible because I need some brainwashing. I need some cleansing to go on. The washing of the water with the word. It has this constant cleansing effect. It's wonderful. It's not, by the way, head knowledge. That's what Bible study is mistaken for by some. It's not head knowledge. It's heart washing. It's brain cleansing. It's also interesting to note, by the way, speaking of fire and water, that the purification of the world occurred once by water and the second time will occur by fire. These two elements. 2 Peter 3.5 says, By the word of God the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. By the way, why did God do that? Why did he destroy the entire world save one man and his family? Noah. Seven other people. Eight people were saved. Listen, it got so bad that there were only eight people left in the world worth saving. That's how wicked it was. So why did God wipe out the entire world? Same reason that he had Israel try, he told Israel to wipe out Midian. Why? Because he was protecting a bloodline. This is so important to know. Noah had to survive. The world had to be destroyed because it was so wicked. But we had to see that man survive. Why? Because it was through his bloodline ultimately that Jesus Christ would come into the world. And if Noah didn't survive, and if God waited just long enough for the world to seep in and cover Noah and his family, then guess what? No Savior down the line. Well, so what? None of the rest of us would have made it either, right? No, listen. There were people before Noah who were godly people like Seth and the lineage of Seth. And all of Seth's descendants needed Jesus eventually to come so that they could be redeemed. And so Noah was saved and the bloodline was protected. And Israel was told to take out Midian so the bloodline again could be protected. But we know a day is coming when by his word, 1 Peter 3, 7, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Fire or trials and water, that is the word. These are godly elements of purification. We're going on. Verse 25. How are we doing here? Oh, we're doing great. Verse 25. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, You and Eliezer the priest and the heads of the father's households of the congregation take a count of the booty, that is the plunder, that was captured, both of man and of animal, and divide the booty between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation. Now this is interesting. It says, take all the plunder from the battle, everything that you got from Midian, and you want to divide it right in half. Divide it in half. Now, don't miss this. Give half of it to those who fought in the battle. Give the other half to the whole congregation of Israel. Everybody got something. Isn't that wonderful? But those who fought in the battle got the greater benefit. Because half was divided among 12,000, 
and the other half would be divided among 2,988,000. Which half would you rather be in? To divide up among the 12,000? The fighters benefited far more than what I would call the fidgeters. <laughs> the fidgeters, they were the ones sitting back in Israel waiting for the guys to come back. I hope they win. Oh, I hope it's going to be okay. Fidgeting. You know, picking their noses, doing other things. And the fighters were the ones who were engaged in the battle. And my friends, it is, it's the same for the church today. It's the same thing. There are the fighters and there are the fidgeters. There are those who engage in the battle. And the whole fellowship benefits for it. Do you know, spiritually speaking, that the entire fellowship of the bridge benefits from your being here tonight? You might not be able to write it out on paper. You might not be able to track it that way. But spiritually there is a benefit for this body by your presence in worshiping the Word tonight. But you get the greater benefit, don't you? I get the greater benefit. Engage in the fight. Be in the battle. You're going to end up with more. It's a greater blessing. It's just the way it is. Again, the book of Numbers is all about being counted. And so the challenge for us as we read through here is to stand up and be counted. Be fighters. Go to war. Don't sit back in camp and fidget. Be a fighter. It's your decision to engage or to barricade. The fighter to fidget, the greater blessing always comes to those who fight. Now, this was divided up, but there was also a portion that went to the Lord as well. That is, to the priest in the tabernacle. Read on, verse 28. Tells us to, he says, Levy attacks for the Lord from the men of war who went out to battle. One in five hundred of the persons of the cattle and of the donkeys and of the sheep. Take it from their half and give it to Eliezer the priest as an offering to the Lord. Verse 30. From the sons of Israel's half, that's the congregation, the fidgeters, you shall take one drawn out of every fifty of all the persons, of the cattle, of the donkeys and the sheep, from all the animals, and give them to the Levites who uh, keep charge of the tabernacle of the Lord. And Moses... And Eliezer the priest did just as, Moses, uh, as the Lord had commanded Moses to do. So of the warrior's spoil, they already have more. Remember, they get between 12,000 of them, they get half divided up. Now, they're only taxed one five hundredth of that. But the congregation is taxed one fiftieth of it. These guys are still getting more. They're still better off. The fighters are always better off. Now, verses 32 through 47 list out all the spoils. We're told there are 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys. By the way, verse 34 is interesting to me. Somebody got a talking donkey out of this. <laughs> I mean, still talking, but can you imagine? Okay, I got my donkey. Hey, slow down. What? What's going on there? Verse 35 going on says that of uh, all those who had not known man intimately, that is the virgins, there were 32,000. Verse 36 tells us the half of the portion of those who went out to war was as follows. The number of sheep was 337,500 and it's listed all the way down to verse 47. The numbering of all the things that were plundered that were drawn out. 47 says from the sons of Israel's half Moses took one drawn out of every 50 both of man and of animals and gave them to the Levites who kept the charge of the tabernacle of the Lord just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 48 Then the officers and this is interesting, who were over the thousands of the army. The captains of thousands and the captains of hundreds approached Moses. And they said to Moses, Your servants have taken a census of men, watch this, of men of war, 
who are in our charge and no man of us is missing. Just blew them away. 12,000 went out, 12,000 returned. Not a single Israelite died in that battle. And these captains, who now had some experience in warfare, could not believe what had happened. They were so overwhelmed, they absolutely knew that this was about the Lord. Not one man was lost. 2 Timothy 1.12 tells us, I know whom I have believed. I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him until that day. He is able to keep me. He is able to keep you. He is able to keep not a single one from falling. And so the captains are so amazed by this, they bring a free will offering to atone for themselves. Verse 50 going on says, We brought as an offering to the Lord what each man found. Articles of gold and armlets and bracelets and signet rings and earrings and necklaces to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. I'm not quite sure. Now I went over this quite a bit. What exactly it is that they're atoning for? Possibly they're atoning for their lack of faith. Possibly they're atoning for their absolute amazement that nobody fell. And then realized, well, why should we have thought anyone would fall when the Lord told us to go? When He sent us into this battle. When the battle was the Lord's. Why should we be faithless? And it goes on and says uh, that Moses and Eliezer, the priest, took the gold from them, all kinds of wrought articles, all the gold of the offering which they offered up to the Lord from the captains of the thousands and the captains of the hundreds was 16,750 shekels. That would be approximately 420 pounds of gold. It's a big gift. The men of war had taken booty, every man for himself. And so verse 54, Moses and Eliezer the priest took the gold from the captains of the thousands and of the hundreds and brought it to the tent of meeting, I love this, as a memorial. As a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord. A memorial. A memorial. They're so impressed with the Lord that after fighting this battle, when they come back, they give a huge offering. And by the way, I want to point out something to you. These are the leaders. These are the leaders of the army. This is what leaders do. Leaders have an eye to see the goodness of God. And they're the ones who say, how can we not give more than has been required? The leaders are those who, when they stand up, when they stand up and, and are counted... They're giving by example. If the leaders are truly watching the Lord, my opinion, the leaders should always, by percentage, outgive the congregation. I'll never forget the elders' meeting I sat in at a church in California where the senior pastor was really concerned with where the giving was at the church. And you may or may not agree with the approach that he took. I probably wouldn't do the same thing, but he was a bold guy. And we sat in that meeting, and he pulled out a piece of paper, and he says, I have in my hands, and we've been talking about this whole giving issue for quite a while, and the fact that budget wasn't being met, and there was really a lackadaisical kind of approach to giving at that church. And he said, I have in my hands the giving statement for all of the elders. <laughs> and people's faces started getting red. And what I'll never forget is the one guy who stood up and threw down his Bible on the floor and shouted at the senior pastor, What right of you to know what we give? That's our business between us and the Lord. And he picked up his Bible and stomped out. 
and promptly resigned as an elder. You can guess what his giving record was like. (laughs) And I never even saw it. Leaders, leaders lead by doing. They lead by example. By showing the fellowship and showing the body how it is that we should be toward the Lord. Leaders aren't perfect. And trust me, your elders at, at this fellowship... And your pastors, which I can say plurally now because Les is now associate pastor and that's kind of cool. Your elders and your pastors are not perfect people. (laughs) But I'll tell you what, if there's one thing that is understood, it's that we cannot ask anybody to do what we're not willing to do ourselves. The Lord doesn't. The Lord doesn't say, I want you to sacrifice for me. I want you to offer your lives as living sacrifices. That's exactly what he did on Calvary. The Lord doesn't say, I want you to trust me and I want you to give. Who among us has given even an iota of what the Lord has given? And so, like these leaders of Israel, I'm so impressed with these guys. They are so impressed with the Lord, they turn around and not only give the tax that they were required, they gave above and beyond far more than that. And what they gave became a memorial. A memorial. That's wonderful. What about you and your battles? What about you and your battles? Have you considered lately, have you stopped and thought about all those who the Lord has saved around you? When was the last time you thanked the Lord for somebody that you know in your life that you got to watch get saved? To watch, Yeah, that's what I meant. For somebody that you were there when they received the Lord, when they accepted Jesus, See, these guys were thrilled because not a single man was lost in the battle. Every single one of them survived. Every single one of them were saved. When was the last time you said, Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving my kids? I know I'm doting a little bit tonight, but I've I've heard all three of my precious ones commit themselves to Jesus in faith. Thank you, Lord. I watched all three of them get baptized. Hayden out here in the pond just not even a year ago. Thank you, Lord. What a blessing. Jesus said in John 17, 12, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that would be Judas, so the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus is praising God for protecting his apostles, for saving them. Philippians 1.6 tells us I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. And Jude verse 24 tells us now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Why? Because he is able to make us stand. And the battle rage is on and we fight to the very last breath but God is able to bring us through that battle God is able to make us stand and that is such a blessing to know he's able to keep that which I've committed to him to guard against those who I've committed to him perishing to keep me from stumbling to keep perfecting me day in and day out through this battle and that makes me want to give my life of my own free will into his hands Like these guys brought a free will offering. I want my life, Lord, to be a free will offering. 
chapter 31 began with a battle but it ends with a memorial a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord a war memorial if you will that word memorial in the Hebrew means to keep in remembrance and so they kept all of this gold that was given they kept it so as a memorial to keep in remembrance but, but who's the memorial for? look at that last verse who was the memorial for? Who's it for? Look at the last verse. It's for the Israelites. The memorial wasn't for the Lord. They brought it as an offering, a free will offering to the Lord, but it was kept as a memorial for the Israelites. For them to remember that this is not for the fallen. War memorials are often for those who have fallen in battle, right? Not this one. This is a war memorial to remind the Israelites that not a single one of them perished. That they all survived. That they were all protected. In other words, remember what the Lord has done for you. Remember how the Lord has protected you. How He kept you. Remember how He preserved you and fought with you and for you. And that's the key to fighting the battle in this life. To overcoming in this life. To keeping the faith all the way to the grave or all the way to the sky. The key is, remember the Lord. One last verse and we're done. Psalm 77, verse 11. The writer of this psalm is struggling. If you go back and read the whole thing, the first ten verses are all about pain and anguish and sorrow and struggle and crying out to the Lord and not feeling like you're being heard. And being awake all night long, eyes wide open, tear ducts dry because the tears aren't taking you anywhere. Depressed and sorrowful and struggling. And Lord, where are you? Have you forgotten all about me? Do you not remember me? And then as though a a shift of peace happens in the heart of the psalmist, he writes, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. That's it. I'm not seeing it right now. I'm not experiencing the Father right now. I'm not feeling His presence in this particular moment. But I will remember what He's done. And there's not a one of us in the Lord who can't look back over the years of our lives and find something fantastic that He's done for us. Something wonderful. Something in which He blessed us beyond comprehension. The psalmist says, I'm going to remember. I will remember your wonders of old. I'll meditate on all your work. I'll muse on your deeds. And he says... Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who makes wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have your power, by your power, redeemed your people. And so I leave you with that verse to say this, that strength for the next battle, and the next battle is just around the corner. Not the hope that you've deferred, because that's not going to work out so well. But around the next corner, when the next battle hits... There is a memorial, a memorial of the last battle, for life is a battlefield. And the memorial, the remembrance is that God will protect us to that final day. Amen? Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, keep us. Keep us safe, keep us protected, but Lord, I pray that you will keep us in the fray. That you will keep us fighting. That you will keep us standing strong, that we will not give one inch of ground to the enemy, but we will continue to advance. Lord Jesus, you said that you would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. That we can stand firm in you. 
And that even when life is hard, when we're facing, as Peter said, those fiery ordeals, Lord, may we not be surprised, but may we expect those struggles and challenges. And as we face them, Lord, remember you and rejoice in the fact that they are making us more and more like Jesus. I pray that you'll encourage us in this. Strengthen us, Father. Give us the ability to fight and to fight your battles. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.